0: Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Biku Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Theravada or Mahayana ordination happens in two stages, one novice ordination and two higher ordination. Most typically, novice ordination is undertaken by youngsters under the age of 20 and full ordination at the age of 20. However, for oldsters already over the age of 20, like me, for instance, both can happen in quick succession. At least, this is customary in Myanmar. Novice ordination involves shaving the head, donning the robes, and taking the refuges in ten precepts. It requires only one monk to perform. It's a private ceremony, not requiring approval of a sangha, a group of monks. In my case, I was a novice for one day. Ashin Ariadama, abbot of the Siddhiku Buddhist Vihara in Austin, Texas, with whom I had traveled to Myanmar, gave the precepts. Another monk, Ashin Lokanakta, who lived in Jamaica, of all places, assisted, and a few laypeople, Burmese and American, were present. We went outside to a large community, outdoor bathing facility, basically a well-like structure common in Myanmar, where I got my hair wet and let Ashin Lokanata shave my head. I had been shaving my head myself for years since ordaining in the Zen tradition, but I had then let my hair, or what was left of it, grow for about three weeks for just this occasion. The procedure attracted many curious Burmese of all ages who, although familiar with its form, were not so with the race of the candidate for ordination. Back inside, Ashin Lokanata helped me put on the lower and upper robes in a side room after Ashin Ariadama had ceremonially offered them to me. These had been donated to me, as had each of the eight Requisites necessary for my full ordination the next day. In the main room, the refuges and precepts were administered in Pali. Tradition requires that this be pronounced precisely, since Pali is respected in Theravada as the language of the Buddha. The Burmese have their unique way of pronouncing Pali, so we followed what is considered internationally to have been the correct pronunciation. After repeating the lines a couple of times in the hopes that I would get it right at least once, Ashin Ariadame had me repeat the Burmese pronunciation, just in case the Burmese had it right all along. After my novice ordination, we reported to Ashin Yanisara, who would be my preceptor the next day, Me sporting my new burgundy outfit, just like Achines, Locanatas, and Ariadamas, as well as the Sierras. After I had made the proper bows, the famous monk spoke. I think of a name for you. I'll give you a little name. It's my experience if someone has a little name. They do great things, a big name, little things. Hmm. How long did you think about ordaining as a Theravada monk? I answered, um, for about four years. I had been a Zen priest in a Japanese tradition for longer than that, which I had with time come to regard as a kind of bardo state of neither monk nor layman, though I had. Tried increasingly to live according to monks' standards and had considered ever more making it official. Four years ago was a good estimate of the time in which I seriously began to think about ordaining in a Winnya tradition. The Winnya is the extensive monastic code established by the Buddha, known throughout Buddhist Asia, but all but forgotten in Japan. Four years, long time. Then he pondered and finally concluded, Sandita it means good thinker. In international Pali, pronounced Chintita. For the rest of the day, I felt like Lawrence of Arabia testing out my new clothing, except that mine was much more primitive and did not come with a dagger. In fact, I felt like I was wearing a beach blanket in public, which might conceivably happen if you're at the beach and, say, an octopus gets ink on your regular clothes, and you have also irrevocably promised to stop at the deli on the way home. Except, in my case, I would have to dress like this for the whole day, no matter where I went, every day, forever. Apparently such fasteners as buttons, straps, zippers, and Velcro just didn't exist at the time of the Buddha, so the outfit stays on more or less by willpower, like a beach blanket would. In the evening, a Burmese family came to visit and greeted me with three full prostrations each. It occurred to me what it must feel like to be a Buddha statue just clay, but the unaccountable, symbolic recipient of great reverence that had been earned by someone else. So why, again, did I want to become a monk? First, so that life would not be a problem for myself or for the many others whom my misguided actions would otherwise harm. Second, so that I could bring the fruits of life and practice to my people, America is spiritually crippled. Its people, by and large, lack any semblance of inner fortitude. They live desperately, often in the midst of wealth and splendor, encountering the world with fear, all the while seeking in vain any bit of personal advantage that might make it all okay. I believe Buddhism will become a positive force in America's future, as it has in my present. But history shows Buddhism never exists long or healthily and never, ever enters new lands apart from its sangha, its third jewel, its monastic community. I wanted to dedicate myself on behalf of Buddhism in the West to the development of an American community of nuns and monks, and what better way than to be one? My full ordination as a bhikkhu, a fully ordained monk, was at 7 a.m. the next day. Many people had mentioned that this timing was auspicious. It was a full moon day. It was Nyanisara's birthday, and it would be the first ordination held in the newly built magnificent 600-seat conference center, which would also now serve as an ordination hall at Sidgu International Buddhist Academy, designed on the model of the famous Sanchi Stupa in India. In my ordination, Nyanissara Siero acted as preceptor, my teacher. Ashin Ariyadama acted as instructor, which meant he would have to do most of the talking during the ceremony, largely in Pali. Full ordination involves acceptance into a sangha consisting of at least five monks. There were almost one hundred monks present, as well as about. 30 laypeople sitting far in the back, including all of the Americans and the Burmese in the pilgrimage group with which I had traveled around Myanmar. Reclusive by nature, I had hoped for a minimal affair. The entire ceremony was scripted, had been scripted, many centuries earlier. Aryadama checked to make sure I possessed all of the eight requisites, three robes, bowl, razor, etc., then took me to a far corner of the space to meet with me privately to ensure my qualifications, then leaving me in the corner formally requested my ordination in front of the preceptor and the sangha. Receiving no objections, a single monk could veto the proceeding. He then summoned me before the preceptor where I formally requested ordination with all of the appropriate bows. The preceptor determined that I was qualified, and a small chorus of monks chanted a text three times to officially accept me into the Sangha. A more relaxed mood ensued, during which the preceptor clarified the four disrobing offenses to me in English. I had taken a set of 227 vows, but only these first four were actually cited, for violation of any of these meant permanent expulsion from the Sangha. The whole ceremony lasted about one hour. My ordination had occurred on Sivigus birthday immediately before the offerings made to one thousand monks and one thousand nuns on Siero's behalf, since I was clearly the monk with the latest ordination date, I was prepared to fall into the obscurity of the end of the long line of monks. But when I emerged from the convocation center ahead of the other now fellow monks with my bowl and other requisites, great crowds of people had gathered, some of whom were gesturing to this gentle white giant as if to say, go to the front of the line, suspecting a jest. I gestured back as if to say, don't you know who I am? I'm the most junior monk in the whole world. And they gestured back as if to say, our custom is that when a group offering occurs right after an ordination, the ordinee is given the privilege of going to the head of the line, ahead of even the most senior monks. And so I proceeded, awkwardly carrying my alms bowl, the use of the strap of which was obscure to me, wearing new sandals, Given to me for the occasion and already chafing my feet, ill fitted in my shiny new robes, which were beginning to slip and to drag on the ground with no free hand to adjust them, and wearing nothing underneath, and at the very head of 1,000 monks, followed by 1,000 nuns, all the while still wondering if I was in the right place at all. I managed to snake through the endless lines of gift donors and to make it back to my room, followed by two capias needed to tote my haul in large plastic shopping bags, for no one had a chance yet to run out of soap nor even Cidigusiero clocks before I passed through. Encoe and a couple of his old friends waiting in my room performed full prostrations to me and proceeded to sort out my offerings, particularly to count the cash donations my copias had received on my behalf. About 350,000 chat, a year's wages for many Burmese. The cash donations embarrassed me since I knew They were not strictly permitted under the Winia. They had become customary for monks in Myanmar, but seldom in in such a substantial quantity. I would later donate the entire amount to a monastery for novices. A monk or a nun is someone who makes a bold choice, a choice that few others see clearly, They also have the freedom to make. That choice is, this will be the shape of my life. Specifically for the Buddhist monk or nun, it is the choice to live as a matter of vow, as if the Buddha's teachings were true. Vow is the mold that gives the clay of one's life a recognizable shape. The idea of exercising the freedom to live a life of vow seems contradictory to most people. The value of living such a life is enormous. My initial reply to the Burmese monks who had asked what felt different to me after my ordination, I know what I am, did not quite get to the heart of it. What was different after my ordination was that now, for the first time, more than a few others, in fact, an entire culture, an entire nation, recognized the shape of my life. It's not so much that I know what I am. I had chosen to be it years before as a Zen priest at the beginning of the good thinking process that would earn me my name, but that others now also know who I am. And not only that, but through their respect for the robes, show that they fully endorse and share my faith in this way of life. My gratitude for being held by this kind of steadfast support was and is to this very day boundless. There's a steep curve for the new bhikkhu, who comes from a land that provides little opportunity to observe the attire, deportment, and activities of Buddhist monks. Shucks, I never even saw monks on alms round until I came to Myanmar. The very afternoon after my ordination, Ashin Ariyadama and all the pilgrims were ready to move on southward. It was suggested that I might wish to stay at Pao Oktoya, a famous meditation center in the far south of Myanmar, for the quickly approaching hot season. Sagaing, in particular, was reputed to swelter during those months. After quick deliberation, we boarded a bus for the 10-hour trip to Yangon. An immediate and ever-present wardrobe challenge, my upper robe seemed to shift with every bump or turn of the bus and at every stop needed to be wrapped around anew. I marveled that a Shin Ariadama's robe stayed so neatly in place. It would be a year before I could wear the robes competently. We reached Yangon and rode a taxi to the Sirigusi Center near Bailey Bridge. The center in Yangon serves as a kind of transit point as visitors to the various Sirigusi centers and projects enter and leave the country. Fortunately for me, the famous Sri Lankan-American Bante Gunaratana, having left the conference in Sagaing just before my ordination, found himself stuck in Yangon, in fact, in the room next to mine, awaiting a visa to permit the next leg of his journey. In his 80s, he was the height of delight and as sharp as newly broken glass, with the same humor that shines through so effectively in his books. The pilgrimage group headed for Molyamine to drop me off at the Powauk Toya Meditation Center, essentially a forest of many many square miles in Mon State with separate villages for monks, nuns, and householders. 900 yogis called this home, 400 of them my fellow monks. This famous center lent its name To its famous abbot and meditation teacher, Pau Ok I took up residence and bid the remaining pilgrims farewell. I would see most of them the following year back in the States. The whirlwind of my first month in Myanmar had ended, and I could now settle in as a monk living quietly in relative seclusion among other monks, devoting the next months to intensive meditation practice, a mainstay of my life now for many years. I remained at Pauktoya for 53 days on intensive meditation retreat deep in the jungle. 76 of my fellow monks were foreigners at the time I arrived, many of those from Mahayana countries, Korea, China, especially Vietnam, and even a Theravada-ordained monk from Japan. We all accepted every meal into our alms bowls, wearing our robes in the complex, formal style that covers both shoulders, went off to eat alone under a tree or in our cabins, otherwise mostly meditated all day and once every two weeks assembled for a long recitation of monks' rules. After that, I returned to Sagain and to the International Academy, where I had ordained and began intensive studies, availing myself of the English library there. In December, I returned to Rangoon for about two months before returning to the States. During all of my time in Sagaing and Rangoon, I taught English to Burmese monks and nuns.